Hi, I'm Pamela Bailey, and I'm the creator of the Antebellum Diaspora Project, a descendant reunification project where we're telling the stories of our ancestors who were separated by slavery in the Antebellum South. Today's guest is Nkrumah Stewart, a family historian. A simple hashtag on a Facebook post led him to a plantation in Hopkins, South Carolina, where four generations of his family were enslaved. First of all, I want to thank you so much for being here, uh, and I sincerely mean that. Um, I will let the audience know that when I got started on my journey um, of finding family that was separated by slavery in the antebellum South, their descendants, I called on a few people who had sort of done um, some of that kind of work before. And I don't know if you remember, it's been a couple of years ago, but you were one of the first people that I called. Oh. Um, I had somehow found, uh, I was doing some research and found an article um, that was written about you um, making some great inroads into finding your family and knowing a little bit about your family history. And I want to talk about that in just a minute, but I want to ask you, how long have you been interested in this family history? Um... I've been interested in uh, finding out my family history since I be as long as I've been around alive, as long as I can remember, because there was a mystery, at least that's the way my childhood mind viewed it. There was a mystery that had questions that needed to be answered. <laughs> and so you know, we don't have any famous astronauts or, you know, any scientists or anything like that in my family. But in on my mother's side of the family in South Carolina, all of the relatives looked white. Mm -hmm. They weren't whitish. They weren't uh, light-skinned black. They were straight off the boat from Germany white. Wow. And as a kid, seeing them... And, you know, you drive to South Carolina, because I'm from Michigan, you go to South Carolina and, and you get out the car and this white man's coming out of the house with his arms open and he's hugging you and kissing your relatives. And I'm just looking at everybody like, hey, we, this don't happen in Michigan. We don't do this up here. Why is, why does he get a pass? Like, what is happening here? Mm -hmm. And that was my first, you know, and then of course, had my mother been honest with me and just told me what was happening, it wouldn't have been a mystery. She could have quelled this in a second. She, oh, well, blah, blah, blah. But you know how when your kids are young, there's things that are complicated and you don't, they ask questions, but some questions you can't really give them the whole answer because they just don't have enough life experience to put it properly in the context. So I, that's my, I'm giving my mom a pass. I think that's why she didn't explain it because I would say, why is granddaddy white? And she would say, he's not white, he's black. And I look at him and I'd say, come on now, mom, mom. And she'd go, what are you saying that for? He black. And I'm like, ain't nobody black look like this. If he black, so is Thomas Jefferson and everybody else. I mean, you know, we got to draw some distinctions here. So that's what initially got me into it, is I needed to find out why they look so different than everybody else in the family and why Honestly, it was like, well, if we don't have a problem getting along with them, then why do black people and white people get have a problem getting along? Because he's as white as they could be, and we seem to love each other and have dinner and hang out. So it was confusing. And it's not that uncommon. Uh, one of the things I do like to share is that, you know, with a lot of African-American families that come to this legacy of slavery, so many of us talk about that grandmother who had long hair. We say she was Native American, and her braids were so long she could sit on her hair. 
And there's that story in almost every family. And I've kind of come to the same conclusion that I think it was a way to spare us about how the thing happened. Absolutely. And, um, and it's kind of interesting because there are people who would have looked like your grandfather who would have chosen not to identify as black. Absolutely. Absolutely. We had that in our family. Um, that was the thing. As I started to look and talk to people about what was happening or how it happened or, you know, what I was, my questions, I started to learn a lot about just the whole context in which this came about. Because, you know, just speaking freely, if I'm not a geneticist here, but if you take a sub-Saharan African who has no Caucasian in his lineage at all, and you take a woman from Northern Ireland who has never left Northern Ireland and they have a child, I'm willing to bet that child will not pass as a, as a being from Northern Ireland, whether it be the texture of the hair or the darker skin, there's gonna be a mix, but they're not gonna pass for white. And the fact that I had so many relatives in this generation that could absolutely pass for white May told me that this wasn't a one-time thing. This was the product of multiple generations of intermixing. Who were they intermixing with? Mm. You know, that was the question. Like, this wasn't just my wife and I having a child and having Elijah and Henry. This was, you know, so um, mm, it was and the fact that no one wanted to talk about it. And it was like seeing a ghost. And you said, y'all see that guy sitting over there by the tree looking at us? And everyone else goes, no, I don't see what you're talking about. And you look and say, you don't see the man right there looking right at us? And now you got a mystery, to, you know, to, mm -hmm. to solve. So is this yeah. something that just sort of stuck with you? And when, when did you decide, okay, it's just time. Like, it's just time to sort of figure this out. Well, I got in high school... Um, See, I benefited from the fact that my great-grandfather, who was my mother's grandfather, she called him granddad, so I called him granddad, but technically he was my great-grandfather. He lived to a, almost 100. Wow. And so I was born in 1972, and uh, he was born in 1898. And I was able to talk to him mm. until, you know, I, until I got too cool for school and quit going to South Carolina because I wanted to hang out with my friends. So I'm talking, you know, till I was probably 16, 17 years old, I could go over to his house and ask him, hey, you know, you know the name of your, of your grandfather? Who's the oldest relative that you remember? And when, you, when a man who is in his 80s tells you he knows his grandfather, mm -hmm. you're talking about somebody who was born in 1840. Right. You know what I mean? We're, we're oh, going yeah. back. So, you know, I think the, that the, so I, in high school, I began to really read like, Malcolm X and I um there was the eyes on the prize documentary series that had come out and I would go to social studies and come home crying every day just mm -hmm. crying from just sadness crying from being proud of the bravery of people to stand up because I'm not gonna lie I don't know if I'm strong enough or brave enough to do the stuff that it did even knowing how it ended up I mean and so when I got into history, then I really got into learning about the story. I look at history like a story. It's not like about dates and that are just disjointed. 
just like the decisions you make tomorrow, the decisions you made today are entirely based on your experiences from yesterday and the day before. I can't know, not your therapist, nobody can understand and help you understand why you did what you did today if we don't understand what happened to you before. So looking at eyes on the prize and looking at the things that were happening, I became fascinated with well, what happened before that? What happened before that? Why did that happen before that? Because then it, as I started to understand that, then the present day made sense. And then I applied that to my own mystery, which was, okay, not only are you all white looking, but you all married other white looking black people. Mm. That's interesting. So all these sisters, chocolate sisters around here, none of y'all went and married them. You married other passing white pe black people who could pass. Mm -hmm. Was that coincidental? Mm -hmm. Was that deliberate? Right. Was there a benefit that you, so, and as you started to, you know, put things into context, you started to say, like you had mentioned about passing, my great grandfather, the one I was speaking to, he left South Carolina and came up to Detroit to work in the Ford factory back when they didn't hire black people. Wow. Nobody asked him if he was black and right. he didn't offer that information. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Absolutely. He didn't say, oh, by the way, um, you know, so I think there was an awareness. I'm going to go on a limb and say, I never asked anybody this, but I think there was an awareness that their, the way they looked could be used to their benefit. Mm -hmm. And I think that, and I know for a fact that they did use it to their benefit. They never passed. They never just turn, turn their back completely because I think they loved their family and they knew what that meant to do that. You could never visit them again. They could never come visit you. It was like it never, they never did that, but they absolutely used their skin color and hair texture and melanoma and everything else they got from being so they use it to their advantage so it's kind of like a don't ask don't tell policy yeah yeah okay. yeah now and so you know i of course was prepared to talk with you about you know sort of the journey which we will talk about but you you bring up the complexities of all of this so it's just not you know when you find out that these are people that are participating in this history and you get to know their names and you know who they are and what they meant to other people now you start to understand a little bit more about their humanity and it sort of brings everything you know to bear um, about their experiences right um yeah. and so this is really really interesting i wanted to first of all um ask you what part of south carolina was your ancestral family in? They are from Hopkins, South Carolina, which is about 20 miles outside of Columbia. Know it very well. Oh, yeah. okay, okay. Oh, I don't know if I've ever shared with you, I'm from South Carolina. Yes, okay, oh, yeah, you yeah, did, so, yeah, yes. okay. Know the area. But you know that area there, you yes, know. Yes, I do. Okay, I do okay. Have a Bluff system. Road, yeah. Bluff Road. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. So that's pretty awesome. Um, yeah. So now one of the things I've struggled with, because I didn't like history, um, I had a similar experience where um, I had, you know, connection. I, I lived very close to the places where my ancestors lived. Mm -hmm. And so um, even though I didn't know a lot of the extended family, my father knew who they were. So I knew that I had fa family in Dillon, South Carolina, or in Clarendon County, South Carolina. And I sort of knew the stories, but I didn't actually know, um, you know, a lot about the people. And so... I didn't have a ton of interest in history. And for me, it was primarily because we weren't in it. You know, right. as far right. as what was being taught to me, 
right. in public school. And so it just wasn't of interest to me. So when I started, um, you know, getting older and really starting to do the research and then found out that my grandfather was in World War One um, or that, you know, I had, you know, people in Clarendon County, uh, another relative who was one of the first to vote in during Reconstruction. That's when, you know, history started really being enjoyable, but also making sense to me. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was my first time understanding that it wasn't what I had been taught um, or even what I was told. So um, do I understand correctly that you did have an interest in uh, college studying uh, history? Yeah, yes, yes. It was my, I, I um, majored in African-American studies, which was, I could have majored in history, but kind of like you, I was like, look, if I'm going to spend umpteenth dollars and umpteenth hours studying, I would love to walk out of this with a better understanding of my own history, of this, of African-American history, of my own people and what we've contributed to the United States, not so much who signed the Declaration of Independence and blah, blah, blah. And I'm not putting down just American history at all, just saying that I wanted to focus on African-American history. And then I also was into, love my philosophy courses. And although you learn a lot about a lot of German and French philosophers in there, the way they thought, the way they were crit, how they thought critically about the information they were taking in, that also trained me to look at history differently, not just to look at dates and stuff, but to look at the psyche and the psychology of what was happening mm -hmm. to, you know, to people like, for example, my great-grandfather's brother was the only person we believe was the only person to die in world war one from hopkins south carolina wow yeah That's his amazing. name hayward henry and he uh he went to um yep and he went off to to france and he got some kind of infection in one of those trenches and he he you know he passed away over there but you know like I'm from Detroit. Well, I'm from Ann Arbor, Michigan, but outside Detroit. And even though I still struggle with, you know, like you talked about the humanity. And when you know these people and when you find out about these people and you learn things about their lives, it's deeply saddening to me. Some of the things I have to remind myself that they were whole human beings. And uh, although they were living in the Jim Crow South and they were afraid for their lives and, and all these things and they were denied their rights, I have to consciously tell myself, but you know what? They laughed sometimes and they sure. danced and they they had and they were whole human beings because sometimes I just look at like you lost your life. You couldn't even vote. Mm -hmm. You know, it's 1914 or whatever. And you could if you were sitting there in South Carolina, you couldn't even vote, but you went up and lost your life in a ditch you know and it's it's just it's it's hard and i think back about my grandmothers on that plantation i mean i want to get ahead of ourselves there but i look think about one of the motivated things i wanted to go to the plant when i discovered it because i wanted to open my eyes from the slave quarters that they lived in and see what they saw Ooh. and i looked at it more like um more like history like you know, like I said, my grandfather came to Detroit, worked for Ford as a white man, didn't tell him, he didn't lie, but came up and he stayed in an apartment. His family was in Hopkins, so he stayed in an apartment. I, if you gave me the opportunity and said, that's the apartment he stayed in, 
a hundred years ago, I would want to go see it. That's just how I am. I'd want to walk into it. Even if you redesigned it, I said, oh, that might've been the bathroom he went to. This was no different. But the people, when I think about the life that they lived and had and the things they had to endure, it is deeply, deeply saddening to me. And it's hard for me to, I have to consciously say to myself, you have to humanize these people and understand that she held her baby and she loved it even though she knew the situation she was in, you know, it didn't stop her from loving it. And when it walked, she was joyful, even though she was on a plantation and had absolutely no rights. And that daughter of hers probably was going to be in the same situation as she did, you know, so. And that's something that you mentioned. And I, um, that's important to me as well. So I have the blessing of coming from a family of singers and musicians. And so the songs have been passed down from generation to generation. And so for me, uh, just knowing even that I'm singing the same songs, you know, mm -hmm. that my grandmother, great grandmother, her mother sang, um, it's pretty amazing. And it does um, make them very real to me, again, and not just numbers um, and, you know, on a census record or names on a census record. So um, what you're saying is very true. So what I want to find out a little bit about is that moment that you made the decision that you were going to reach out to the family that owned the house that used to be the plantation where your family was enslaved. How did that happen? And I want to know a little bit more about your traveling to South Carolina to make that trip happen. Yeah. Okay. Well, just for the record, I had no intention on ever meeting these the Adams ever. That was not my idea. Um, the way it started was um, I have did my DNA on Ancestry.com. Through there, I have met several cousins who I, you know, we both shared DNA. Oh, okay, we're cousins, blah, blah, blah. And I found out that one of my cousins had written a book. And I have it here. Uh, her name is um, Brenda Clarkston Trupeau. And she wrote a book called Almost Forgotten, The Real America. And she, her grandfather was my great grandfather, um, James Henry. They were first cousins. Wow. So when she did this, all this research into her family, there's a point where we split. But up until that point, we're talking about the exact same family members, right? So I'm looking at this and I'm like, oh, okay. And I'm reading about it. And then that's when I, she had in her book, there was a ledger that showed all of these slaves that had been emancipated from the Adams Plantation in 1865. And I had four generations of my great-grandmothers alive on that day. James Henry, who's my great-grandfather, his mother, Octavia, was one. Her mother, Louisa, her grandmother, Sarah, and her great-grandmother, uh, Tene. okay? So I'm sitting here and I'm like, the Adams Plantation, now you'll, you'll get a kick out of this because you said you, was, you had a similar experience. So I live in Detroit. I come down every other summer or so and I spend time with my grandparents. I say, I have never driven past what I think is a plantation the entire time I'm there. I go down Bluff Road, we go to my Uncle Thomas's house, whatever. So I'm talking to one of my cousins and she says, well, you know, the Adams Plantation still exists. And I said, you got to be kidding me. What? And she says, yeah, man, it's a bread and breakfast. 
I said, what? She goes, yeah, and they also host weddings. Now, pause there because I can't, right there, I'm like, I, I can't understand how anybody would want to celebrate a wedding or a reunion on a place like this. I don't know. Maybe I'm ignorant. Maybe people get together at Auschwitz and get and do their vows and stuff at these places. But to me, it was like, that's the last place I would ever think that you would have holding weddings. And so I reached out to my mom, who was down in South Carolina at the time visiting, and I called and I said, listen, this Adams Plantation is now called Wavering Place. I said, I need you to go on a mission. I need you to put on your, your, your black outfit, your mask. I need a picture. I need this something. I said, and I told her the same thing. I need to see where my grandmothers, what they saw when they were alive. This place still exists. We got to get there. So she calls the Adams, the Wavering Place, and she talks to Shanna, who I call my cousin. And she, at the time, we just, this is just a lady answers the phone. And my mom says, I would like to see the bed and breakfast or whatever at Wavering Place. And she goes, I'm sorry, I'm not in town. I'm nowhere near it. Uh, we'd have to reschedule some other time. And my mom goes, okay. She hangs up the phone. She calls me back. Can't do it. They're, they're busy. They're not there. I said, oh, no, we're not letting that stop us. Now, I'm not trying to suggest nothing criminal. I'm just saying, I'm like, that won't stop us. I said, <laughs> we need to at least get a picture right. of the sign out front something i need to know this place exists and you're down there so please confirm it exists so she said okay so her and my dad got in the car and they navigating through these back roads which i give all props to you people who can get around down there i don't see street signs i just people just tell you up the road yonder right. to left. so they wandering through and they see this sign and this gate and my mom takes a picture and she sends it to me so I'm so excited. I can't, I mean, I'm just giddy. And so I posted on Facebook, this is the place where four generations of my great-grandmothers were when they were emancipated in 1865. It is now on the top of my bucket list. I need to see this place. And I tagged Wavering Place. I never, I don't know why. Maybe I was divinely guided. I don't know. But I tagged Wavering Place. And about 10 minutes later, my mom gets a phone call. Um, no, I get a message from about 10 minutes later on Facebook saying, oh my God, my name is Shanna, you're my cousin. I didn't know you were uh, that that was your mother who called me. Yes, you can come, I'll come right down now and, and let you guys in. Oh my God, this, I'm so excited. I can't wait to tell Robert. I'm like, Robert, I don't, you know, she said she was my cousin and she was super excited. And I wrote her back. I said, well, don't get too excited. I, I, I'm in Michigan. My mother called you. She wanted to see the place. I can't, you know, make it down. Um, but I'd love to someday, but I appreciate it, you know. And then she wrote me and said, I just called Robert. He's so excited. Here's his number. Robert says, call him as soon as you can. Wow. So... Can I stop you there for a second? Yeah. That is not a typical response. I'm sure. <laughs> I have had some amazing experiences, but very often, most often, that is not the response. So that is amazing that that happened. So um, Shanna, she tells me, she just told to Robert uh, what had happened that 
that I had contacted him and Robert and here's Robert's number and he wants you to call him as soon as you can. And remember, I had no desire. That was not the plan was to meet anybody. I just wanted, I, it's very small. I just wanted to see what my grandmother saw. So I was really nervous about calling this guy because I didn't know what to expect. Um, for one thing, I'm like, all right, this is dude is from, I knew about the Adams. I knew that they were one of the wealthiest. They, if, if you go back into just pure wealth, they were part of the 1% in the Annabelle. Mm-hmm. South. That's how wealthy they are. All their relatives are governors and state senators and uh, from South Carolina. They are very well connected and wealthy. And so I'm sitting here thinking, is this guy want to sue me because I just posted on, you know, on Facebook that I was his cousin and my relatives, you know, is he going to say, well, yeah, I need, you know, it's all nice and good, son, but I'm going to need you to cease and desist saying that there were slaves on my property. Isn't it a plantation? Yes, but, unless, but. you know, but we would need you to. So I didn't know. So um, I talked with my wife. I was like, do I really want to call this person? And She's like, hey, well, what you got to lose? What's the, what's the big deal? So I said, all right. So I, I gave him a call and he picked up after one or two rings and he go, he, he says, cousin, I am so glad to hear from you, cousin. Call me cousin. And I'm like, okay. And he says, before we get into anything, he asked me how I was doing and hope everything was right. And he says, before we get into anything, I just need to say that there is absolutely nothing. He says there's absolute, there's a horrible, horrible things happen in slavery on that plantation between your family, my family. He goes, and there is absolutely nothing that we can do today that can change any of that. All of that that happened is beyond our power to change. He goes, the only thing we do have control over is deciding on how we want to move forward. And I would love to have a relationship with you, cousin. He goes, but it's up to you. And that's paraphrasing because it sounded so much more poetic when he actually said it at the time, but it was exactly how I felt. And the only reason I went forward with having this relationship with Robert was because he so beautifully articulated how I felt because there isn't anything we can do to change what actually happened. But if I had met this guy at a South Carolina Gamecocks football game, he was sitting right next to me and we were laughing and talking and drinking a beer and rooting on the Gamecocks and afterwards went out to dinner and we, we clicked. That's just human to human. We're just clicking person to person. And so then if I find out that he's related to someone who exploited and abused my family 150 years ago does that make the connection we just made any less genuine or should I now break that off because of who he's related to and that's not the type of person I am now had Robert been a different type of person because I had no desire I mean I didn't wake up in the morning saying boy I really want to meet you know the descendants of people who own my family members that's not a goal of mine I could care less but it was him. It was it was him and how he his attitude towards this entire thing that allowed us to, to connect. Isn't it very disarming? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Because he said 
I said, look, I don't live in South Carolina. I come down there and visit every couple of years. I probably haven't been down there in six, seven years. He says, well, the next time you come down, you, you got to promise me you won't come here and leave without coming to see me. And that's that Southern hospitality, you know, I get that from other relatives, but he said, you must promise me you will not come here and leave without seeing me. I have to see you. I want to see you. And I said, okay, I promise. But honestly, I didn't know when I was going to come down there. So it's almost like an empty promise mm -hmm. in the sense that I don't know if I'll ever be able to fulfill it. But my grandmother um, who lived down there, she had um, Alzheimer's uh, dementia. Mm -hmm. And it was progressing pretty aggressively. And I had two boys and I had been married and I had two boys and I wanted her to see her great grandboy sons when she could still put together who they were, if that makes sense. Like it, knew it was heading, but I wanted, even though she might forget and she would, I wanted her at least to be there in that moment and say, oh, wow, Nakuma, you're my grand first grandbaby and these are your boys. Uh. Yeah. So I made a trip to go down there and I contacted Shannon and Robert and I said, I'm going to be down during these days, spending time with my grandmother. If you want to get together, we can get together then. And that's how it happened. So wow. it was never. And then he, oh, come down. And he had all these people he wanted to to bring over and meet. And, and I was like, no, I just, he says, you want me to bring people? There's people I want you to meet. I want you to meet this pastor here. And I want you to meet this person. Like he was going to show me around to all and connect me. And I'm like, uh -uh. I'm like, I'm man, I'm just down here to really see my grandmother and her mm -hmm. family thing. And I don't mind meeting you, but if we're going to meet, let it just be us. I don't want to make it bigger than just us. And he was like, mm -hmm. understood, understood. So they picked the date. They, uh, he said, who's coming? Is it? And I said, oh, just Wendy and myself. I had roped my grand, my parents into babysitting the boys. <clears throat> and he was like, no, 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 no. Just I, your parent, bring your parents, bring the kids, bring anybody. He says, anybody and everybody you have, bring them down, bring mm. them in. I want to meet everybody. I want to meet everybody. Again, I'm like, what? So I look at my parents, I'm like, well, he actually wants y'all to come too, you know? And they were like, oh, okay. And I said, well, then you don't have to watch the, you know, watch the kids, we'll all go. I didn't ask everybody to go because once again, I didn't want it to become, become bigger than it was and bigger than it, you know, I just, I wanted to be able to have an intimate conversation with him and whatever. I didn't want to have him to have to become a host and entertain. And I didn't really know how everybody would even feel about this. Because my point, what I was going to say was about that you were to relate to. You said you grew up in South Carolina and you lived roughly in the same area that you mm -hmm. had relative. Okay, this place is four miles from where I've been visiting this entire time. Mm -hmm. Once again, I'm like, boy, if somebody held me captive in some place, I seem like as soon as I was free, I'd be 400 miles away from that place. Four miles, you could walk four miles. And I'm like, and y'all had me coming down here every other summer and I'm this close. So, I mean, I, even that, I had a whole lot of mm -hmm. stuff to deal with, but yeah. So that's how that happened. He, he invited us out, insisted that I bring as many people as I could. And then he gave us a tour. That is amazing. And I think um, if people sort of on both sides sort of have that level of maturity. First having the understanding that, yeah, I know that you didn't do this, you know, and him saying, recognizing 
that, you know what, my family was involved and it was a terrible history, but I wanna do something differently now because what happens a lot of times is that we, again, get met with excuses. Um, you know, we get met with a lot of, well, that's just kind of how it was then. And so there's no regard. And I, I share with people, when you do that, you're discounting the people who are enslaved again. Like you're saying, it really doesn't matter. That 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 was a little blip in history. And right. so um, I have had those people who said to me, even as I've been on this journey, I hope you're my family. Like I, I would hate that it would happen the way that it happened, but I hope that we can be family, you know? So when that kind of thing happens, it really takes you to a more, um, just a more humane place where you can, again, um, you know, have that attachment or, you know, meet each other just as people. But when you know that the person does acknowledge and respect the history and all that entails, it's a game changer. It really is disarming. Absolutely. I agree with every single word you said. And that's what it that's that's exactly how it felt. And he had a great sense of humor, too. And uh, and I wasn't prepared to make jokes and, the, and like, I didn't know what to expect. So I was I, I but. As we're driving there and I'm like, I'm about to step foot on this land and I'm about to walk in and they have a original slave quarters, original wood still standing on the property. And they said many places bulldoze those down because they're, they're kind of raggedy chest. His is still standing, right? And so he told me that I'm like, wow, when I come there, I'm actually going to walk into where my relatives were. So, but again, I'm, you know, just everything. I had so many emotions and things going on, but he comes up to me and he says, you know, I met um, the Clarkstons and that's Brenda's family, right? The one. Mm -hmm. And I said, yeah. And I looked at him and he said, those are the whitest looking black people I've ever seen him. And we cracked up. I'm talking spitting, laughing, because it's the truth. And I'm telling you, that's what started this whole thing. So he is a white man. And he's like, boy, I was at that family reunion. I felt right at home. He said, everybody, that's the whitest black people I've ever seen in my life. So that's just the kind of humor and you know, he, he was just, that's just the type of guy he was. And um, so, yeah, that, that part was interesting. So the next day we were leaving and that was deliberate. I didn't know how I was going to go. So I deliberately planned the meeting to that plantation on my last day there. Wow. I didn't do it the first, I didn't know what kind of feelings and stuff I would hit, but I knew mm -hmm. that I wanted to be on the road, heading back North to Michigan when I was processing it, I didn't want right. to be there. And so as I was, we took pictures and stuff. And as I, uh, the next, that night, I, we had a good dinner and good conversation. And I posted some pictures just, you know, and I said, whatever I said, I forget what it was, it was a little paragraph. And it just said, basically, you know, this is where four generations of my great grandmothers um, were enslaved. And I had dinner today in the big house with my cousin, Robert. And although we can't change anything that happened in the past, um, I look forward to beginning to having a, a friendship with my cousin in the future. Uh -huh. It's something just like that. I, you can look up what the actual verbiage was. And the next day 
I mean, I typically I might get 20 likes, you know, something like that. Next day I'm looking and there's several hundred when I wake up and then I'm in the car driving to South driving to going back home. And Shanna calls me, um, ABC news just called us. And they said that they, um, like the story. Cause I tagged them obviously in the thing, uh, like the story and they would like to talk to you. And, uh, oh yeah, it's like 600 likes right now. Next thing I know I had 14 different newspapers and stuff calling me asking me for interviews and whatever and i'm now i'm dealing with that while i'm driving home something i hadn't you know planned on i had never even been on reddit and we were this was like the feel good story of the day or something on reddit which brought in even more people and it really be it was it took me by surprise because it was not ever anything that I intended. I thought I was sharing this just with the 700 friends from high school and college and whatever that I have. I'd never had ever intended it to go out beyond that. But then once it did, it, you know, took on a life of its own. That's amazing. It really is amazing. I want you to back up a little bit though, because I want to, I want to talk about what it felt like to approach that property when you parked your car to know that you were walking literally in the same places that your family walked and even into the little shed. Because having done that, um, I know how, even if you don't feel it in that moment, because there's some initial excitement, but then we'll go to that processing part. Yeah, I'm not really good at separating my emotions or telling you about each emotion almost like spices in a dish like I couldn't be a chef and go a little salt a little cinnamon I'm, not, I'm more of a whole type thing. okay and so sometimes when I'm afraid what you get is anger because mm. I'm really afraid but I don't really know how to acknowledge that fear but I do know how to get angry so things though I get angry and I lash or whatever and so thinking back about that there was definitely fear um there was definitely a profound sadness mm -hmm. because I, because of the circumstance in which I was there, that they were there, that Robert is my cousin, all of that, um, it just, it's not, we're looking at the slave quarters in the shadow of the big house and you're looking at this three story, maybe, yeah, it couldn't have been four story. I think it was three story mansion. And then you look at this drafty, you know, slave quarters and it's like, that's where my family lived. That's where his family lived, you know? And then looking at, and remember the reason I started this journey is why does my family look so white? And then realizing that, they were having children from the Adams family. Um, Louisa was actually Joel, I think she was Joel Roberts' half-sister. So she, he, so there's so little regard here that your father is having sex with my grandmother. They had a daughter, and you, that's your half-sister, and you had a and you had a child with her. So you didn't even look at her like she was your, even your sister. Right. And, you know, and then when we went around the property, we actually went past what is 
what they just had recently discovered to be a slave graveyard. <clears throat> and the reason they discovered it was because um, a nonprofit had, um, don't hold me to this, I think this, I'm, I'm trying to remember the circumstances, but a, a nonprofit had visited the plantation and had used some sort of sonar equipment to map the ground and had realized that there were bulges that were consistent with bodies being buried in rows. Not one marker, not even a rock on any of these people's uh, graves. And remember, I know of four um, women, great grandmothers who were on the planet. I don't know a single name of a single boy, <clears throat> so unless they only had one child apiece, you know, what happened to all my uncles? What happened to all my, you know, they they are in these unmarked graves. So, you know, I felt I was afraid. I didn't know what was actually going to happen. Very nervous um, meeting him, even though I had a conversation with him to actually be on this plantation. I was afraid um, that maybe in some way I had rushed into this, mm. you know, like, I, maybe I hadn't thought this all the way through. Like, am I ready to handle what might happen? Like, I must have known at some level it was going to be difficult because I planned it on the last day. But it's more like you just, you know it's going to be tough. You know it's going to be deep. But you don't really know how you're going to respond. And I was afraid, I was nervous about him because he's a very personable, sociable guy. He seems to disarm you and is very, very charismatic and jovial and just a, a kind spirit but what if he opens his mouth and say something really really offensive because he I don't know if he knows how to talk to you know me or my family what if he you know I don't I have no idea so I just kept telling myself you are here almost like a you know a professor or, or a researcher you're taking this all in from a historical perspective and just keep you know your emotions at bay um, you know, and, you know, I didn't know it, it would be impossible to take that, that position had it been my actual grandmother or my actual dad or mom who was in that plantation sleep. But these are people who were dead 60 years before I was even born. Right. So right. I, mean, I don't even know people who knew them. They're that, you know, they were that because my great grandfather knew his grandfather, but he was white. And he knew his father, who was three in 19, in 1865, and his mother was one. But their parents might not even, he might not even have known them, you know. So I just, I don't know. It's, it's cognitive dissonance and trying to, but it, that's how I tried to keep my emotions down, was just reminding myself, look, you know, you're just, you're here taking this all in. This is a great experience. Most people don't have. Last person I know that had it was Alex Haley. So I'm like, hey, you know, <laughs> you're taking this all in and, um, you know, just be real clinical about it. Just, you know, kind of cold. I didn't, I didn't want to really spend too much time um, trying to personalize it, I, don't, I think, because I didn't know what I was going to do. You know, like, I didn't know how I would handle that, just to be honest with you. Wow. And I haven't, I've never been back. Like it was oh. never, it was never a, oh, I need to come back here. I saw mm -hmm. it. I saw what I, 
you know, I saw what I came to see. I don't, I have no desire to, to ever go back. So our stories are so close in so many ways, um, because again, I used to, in the summertime especially, spend the night with my Uncle George and my Aunt Nan um, in, um, a, in Florence County, South Carolina, a place called Mars Bluff. And um, so when I finally went down to visit this plantation, um, I was looking at my GPS and I'm like, all of this looks familiar. Like it looks really familiar. So when I, it tells me to turn in, I'm like, you know, Uncle George and Aunt Nan, like live right down the road. Like it was so close. And so in, um, in South Carolina, a lot of the plantations have sort of that French um, style where the trees are planted together. I believe it's called an LA. And so the plantation sits way back off the road. And so I've driven by that um, particular plantation thousands of times mm. and never even knew that it was there. Damn. Never knew that it was there. Now I will say my experience was a little bit different in that I had a great uncle Charlie, my great grandmother Elvira's brother, who had lived on that plantation. She was born after um, the uh, emancipation, but he had lived on that plantation as a child. And he was one of those people who was interviewed in the Federal Writers Project. Wow, okay. So I had an opportunity to read his interview prior to going to the property. And again, because I felt, you know, I'm one of those people, and I don't know if you've gotten to this point where you just feel compelled, like you are that person <laughs> that just, the universe has made it so that you're the person who's going to go and see and experience this. And so when I got there, you know, um, I was greeted. Um, I had a really, um, a two hour visit and the person was very kind, um, but she was also very, still very rooted in what she had been told. And it was one of those things that was very interesting because I wanted to be very respectful, but it was also important for me to tell her the things that really happened. And she was aware of Uncle Charlie's, um, you know, of his interview. But what was really cool is that he was describing things in the interview. So I knew that the house my family built, and she had said to me, nothing has changed. They've changed a few panes out of the window, but the porch, the doors, every single thing, as in terms of the structure of the house, was the house that my family built. And the man who built it was a doctor. And so his apothecary or his office was still there. That's the part that probably struck um, a real nerve you know, because I knew the things that my family would have endured. Mm -hmm. um, so the visit, you know, it, again, it was a very interesting visit. I was so grateful that she'd taken so much of her time to, you know, to talk to me. She was very kind to me. Um, you know, we had a little talk at the end and, um, you know, to talk about some of the attitudes today on both sides of this. But I can remember going back to the hotel and I think I cried a little bit. I cried quite a bit because, again, one of the things that Charlie had written about was he remembered seeing my great-grandmother, um, her name was Priscilla Johnson Grant, uh, being stripped and tied to a pole in the middle of that plantation and being beaten. Now, he was a little boy, and when he had done this interview, he must have at least been in his 80s or so, and so he had um, a vivid memory 
about what had happened to her. So the owners of the plantation, they were not the original um, owners of the plantation and they had not been um, the person who had enslaved my family, but they were the people who had taken over um, the farm. And so my family that were emancipated, some of them stayed on as sharecroppers. And I know that that treatment was only about a half step above slavery. So I was so grateful that I'd had the experience and I'm still so grateful. And again, just seeing the skill set of my parent, my grand, my family, my ancestral family, um, that they could do anything, you know, with their hands. Um, I read in that same interview that Priscilla was a healer um, on the plantation. So when someone had been beaten the way she was, most likely that person would have been brought to her so that she could use herbs and, you know, salves to sort of heal them. Um, but it was a lot. It was a lot. And again, I think I was going to ask you, and I will ask you this, for someone else who wants to take this journey, they're excited because now they have the names, they have the places, they understand that this is an extant property, they can still go visit it, however it's being used. But what advice would you have for someone who wants to take this journey and actually walk in those places and spaces that their ancestors walked, given all of this history? Mm. I would say just be clear about what you expect to get out of it. You know, um, if you think you're going through this to get an apology from them, you know, uh, whoever owns the plantation, it, maybe you run into the, maybe you own the property and it's owned like with me by the exact same family that owned it before. Um, I, you know, I don't know, whatever. I think that people who do genealogy are just naturally inquisitive people. They, they have questions and they know that not only do they question, but they say, well, I'm gonna go get the answer. Like they're not waiting on somebody else. So I think the person who does that is already going to be a naturally inquisitive person. I would just say, you know, be clear about with yourself about what your goals are and, um, you know, focus on those. And, I, you know, I don't I don't I don't want to say, you know, <laughs> I don't want to say don't expect too much, but um, definitely I would approach it like I did, like almost like a like you're doing a, a, a doctorate doing research, you know, that these places that you're going like are, this is history and this is your history, but it's not just your history. It's all of our history and it's the people's history that won't be able to make it. So document what you see, you know, if you've got writing skills, write about it so other people can experience it. Cause not everybody even, not everybody has the opportunity to do what we did. A lot of people won't, don't even want to do it. Right. You know I mean? They just don't even have, the desire. But yeah, I would say follow your, you know, follow your intuition and, and your and your curiosity, but just maybe keep those emotions, you know, in check. So your boys were really, really young, I'm assuming when you went the first time. Yeah. But now they're older. And have you revisited that uh, experience with them? Have they asked you any questions about it? Um, I don't think I've given them an opportunity to ask questions because we talk about this all the time I let them you know we always talk about um what it means to be black in America what it means to be white I'm in a um biracial marriage so my wife is white 
And we talk about it from both perspectives and the relationship between blacks and whites in America and the historical relationship between us. And so that plantation visit always kind of plays in, and this is where you went and this is what happened. And remember when we went here, now they were really young, but they remember seeing the pictures and they remember all that. I think they remember of the actual visit was the pictures that they didn't like the food um, and that um, and that daddy was on TV and daddy was on the radio and daddy <laughs> flew to California and blah, blah, blah. I think they remember more of the stuff that went after it than they do. Mm-hmm. But we always talk about, we always talk about, I want my kids to be aware of how these things, I want them to know, look, all of this happened, but that didn't stop your mother and I from falling in love. That didn't right. stop that. This doesn't dictate how you treat people and how, how you expect to be treated by people, but this happened. And they, so they know, they, they know that that's, that's kind of how I frame it. Yeah. So, well, let me just ask them because we're in a very difficult place in this country right now where people are still very resistant um, for their children knowing this history. And I, I will say, I will venture to say, even in some instances on both sides, you know, there are some people who just want to forget it and act as though it never happened um, because it's so painful or they're embarrassed or hurt by it. And then there are people who are so afraid of their own children knowing that they are descended, you know, from this history, even though, again, they're not responsible for it. So I want to get just your opinion, especially because you've got children um, that are at the age that people are interested in starting sort of this kind of curriculum and conversation in schools. What do you feel or how do you feel about um, whether it's critical race theory or just teaching the full history um, to children who are your children's age. I am 100%, 100% supportive of teaching all the history with one, but you have to tailor it to the minds of the age group that you are dealing with. But there should be nothing that we sugarcoat about it in the sense of what happened. You don't have to get into the gory details with five-year-olds, six-year-olds, seven-year-olds, but even though it can be as simple as, I mean, hey, is Sesame Street been teaching people for 40, 50 years? They know how. You could say, Big Bird, how would you teach somebody about this? And trust me, the people at Sesame Street would know how to talk. They talk about everything. And so I know it can be done. Um, But I am 100% in support of that because going back to how we, what we said before, you, it is impossible to understand what is going on in the world today if you don't understand what happened yesterday. Impossible. You can't go to the doctor and say, fix me and don't tell him what hurts. You can't right. tell him, well, I'm gonna neglect to tell you that I smoke six packs of cigarettes every single day for the last 20. I'm not gonna tell you that, <laughs> but if you, you, you come and tell me what you think is going on, right? So. There, and, and so when I hear about the resistance, I mean, you've got people getting elected to office on the on the pretense of saying they're going to ban critical race theory. And it's not even taught just the idea of I, I, I want to ban it. So is enough to get people out to vote to pull a lever for someone. And we have to understand the, the what drives people to, to do that. And, and, and to your point, I am in an African-American family group at my children's school. And we, we formed to try to address the, um, ec- the educational gap between white and black students. And we got to talking about Black History Month. 
and how we were going to approach that or how we think we should approach that. And we bought more books with more protagonists with people of color for the book fair so that people, because I mean, not just black people need to read books with the protagonists of color, but white people too. They need to be just as comfortable with the hero being a black girl or a black boy as anybody else. But to your point, they said they wanted no mention. These are black parents, no mention whatsoever of slavery. We didn't talk about that enough. Everybody know about that. We don't need to talk about that. And I look like I was the Uncle Tom because I said, how in the world? I said, every the reason we are in this group right now talking about an educational gap, talking about generational poverty, there isn't an issue that we're not trying talking about in this room that I can't point to the origins in slavery. How are you going to understand how we can fix this if you're scared to talk about that? But it's because, in my personal opinion, mm-hmm. they are embarrassed mm-hmm. of their own family members. They think they, and there's a part of them, and I don't think I would, they would ever admit it. And that's why I said, this is just how I feel. They, there's a part of them that blames their own family members for slavery, as if somehow, if they would have just this or just that or just this, this wouldn't have happened. And, um, you know, and it really is based in ignorance because the more you understand about just the almost impossible obstacles that stood between someone leaving Biloxi, Mississippi and getting to Pennsylvania in one piece makes Harriet Tubman almost an angel, almost a superhero that she could even do this and then go back and teach other people how to do this. And it also, when you learn about this stuff, teaches you that that with all her superpowers and her determination and her unbreakable will, it still wouldn't have been possible if there weren't white people helping out. That's right. A group effort. And so if you want to devilize the white man and say he ain't never did nothing but did this, understand she wouldn't have got a single brother or sister out of the South. They work together. Yes, there are white people who had who saw what was going on, had mm-hmm. humanity to stand up against it. And that is what where the where we're strong. But they don't even want to talk about that. And right. I sat there and just shook my head and said, boy. You need to be over here with the critical race theory. They don't want to talk about it. And apparently you don't either. So y'all actually don't even realize it, but you on the same side. I want, I want, I want the truth to be taught. I want historical evidence that can be actually verified by, by facts, by research and accounts, research to be the backing. And that's all it is. If the research stands, that's what it is. I had a white lady tell me one time that the reason black people were enslaved here is because Muslims enslaved black people and the white people in America were so offended by it, they went on their boats, (laughs) intercepted the Muslims, freed the black people from the Muslim slavery and blacks were so thankful that these white people rescued them from slavery, they agreed to be the white man's slave and came over here. And so actually the reason they were here is because they agreed to do it out of being so thankful. And I'm like, how can you teach? Once again, if that's true, can you please produce the documents and the firsthand counts to back up your your story? And the only reason they can believe that, in my opinion, is because America is still not prepared to deal with what she is and what she has been. It goes against what 
the myth that we teach ourselves of American exceptionalism. Somehow we are divinely different than every other country in the world. And those sacred words of, you know, that in the constitution of the Bill of Rights, I'm like, but that never applied to us. And you never wanted it to apply to us ever. They both can exist at the same time. They can. About before about the humanizing my relatives and not mm -hmm. thinking that all they were was this same thing with the United States. The United States on the one hand has a constitution which is the envy of the world and anyone who writes a constitution since 1776 has used that document as a guide to craft their own constitution. At the exact right. same time, every single right in that piece of paper has been denied these people who have been here for hundreds of years at the exact same time. Mm -hmm. It's not one or the other. It's not if black people have, are, haven't been free, then this is a lie. They both existed. It's just that only white men have been able to benefit from the constitution. They still did. Their rights was intact. Right. You know, it's ours that we had to fight for. And that's all we want. We just want mm -hmm. the facts, lay them out mm -hmm. as they are, have scholars back them up, show us. I mean, I don't know everything. I studied African-American studies and I was always fascinated and always learning. I still learn all the time new things, but I defer to the scholars. The people who have spent their entire lives, they have doctorate studying this stuff. And let's ask them, what do the facts say? And right. Yeah. Well, and, and you know, I, I say to people, particularly African-American people who, and again, I respect that this is not your thing, I understand, but I don't want you to be embarrassed by it. Number one, it's kind of like having a family member that has cancer and it's not the fault, their fault that they got cancer, but you're embarrassed of them because they got sick. But the other part of that is because they don't know the history, they don't know how phenomenal their family members are. And so when I started doing this research, and again, talk about humanizing them, you know, I tell people, I remember when there was that whole Kanye West debacle where, you know, he kept saying, you know, he thought that it was a choice. Well, to some degree, when you think about men who have the ability to run, and chose not to leave their children because they love their families. I mean, I don't know how, if I could ever even explain that kind of love that I know I'm making my life harder. I'll look you in the eye right now. I would not leave my children. Right. I'm telling you right now, I couldn't do it. The black men who ran, didn't have many didn't have children they were of right. that age but they were young that's why they were really watchful for between 15 to 21 22 and they mm -hmm. encouraged you to have sex with these women because they knew if you had a child the chances of you running dropped significantly Drast drastically drastically you know what i'm right. saying and so that kind of love, so it, it really, one of the things I used to hear thrown around quite a bit when people were talking about, you know, being militant or not accepting a certain kind of behavior, and they'll say, uh, well, we're not our ancestors. And I thought you certainly are not your ancestors, because I don't know, as you said earlier, if I could have survived that. I don't know. You know, Prissy Johnson that I talked with you about um, a little earlier, um, the part of that's my mother's family and the women for generations in that family are very prissy women, like always wore dresses and hats and brooches and that kind of thing. So the humiliation 
of seeing the whole community on that plantation see you be stripped down to nothingness. Like she's still a woman. Her children are watching. Um, and so to be able to then put your life back together and still continue to take care of the people who are sick that look like you, you know, and to still pray and to cover your children. And, you know, again, like you, you were saying, even those people to me are almost like superheroes. But again, um, you know, we have this complexity just being human beings and people on the other side of this history have to remember that even if grandma was an amazing person and she treated you so well, she still may have been in that crowd of people who were holding the signs, not wanting the schools to uh, integrate. And, um, you know, those things can exist in the same person. So yeah. again, I think, um, you know, we just want people to be so pure, like either they're purely good or they're purely bad. That's because people have so many people at have a difficult time understanding abstract thoughts, abstract ideas, and things that are just not concrete. They want to look at it like, if you are a great man, then you could have never cheated on your wife. If you are this, then you couldn't done that. That is not reality. That is not reality. Never has been. That is like this. I mean, things are ugly. Things are messy. People are messy. You can go back in time and find out that I said something about somebody that I would never say today. I was 21. Mm -hmm. I'm 49. Mm -hmm. I'm a different person at 49 than I was at 21. And if I saw that person, I'd apologize. That's right. not, I, yeah, I said it. That doesn't mean, yeah, I said it and I bet. No, that means I'm not going to deny I said it. I'm sorry I hurt you. I'm sorry, but I was immature. I didn't know what I was doing. No excuses, but I'm going to offer you an apology today. I'm sorry. That's not who I am. And I hopefully to you, you know, you would understand that I would never cause that type of harm on anybody else going forward. That's all we can really ask. You That's know what it. I mean? But yeah, it's so, I, I'm with you too. When you said the strength, I know, I truly, if I'm strong enough to survive what they went through, I don't know it. I don't have anything to prepare me for that. I think that putting yourself in those people's shoes, in our family's shoes, they were born in an institution, specifically speaking of my great-grandmothers. My first great-great-grandmother, she was bred at the age of 12 at mm. a plantation. After she had so many babies, they gave her to the Adams, sold her to the Adams plantation. That's where she got, and then she had the other. I don't, um, when you are in, in, a, in an inhumane situation like that, in an institution that has already existed for centuries, two centuries, how much hope do you have that it won't last another two centuries? You understand this? Right. They know in 1820 that they were 45 years away from this institution being dismantled and another mm -hmm. one coming quickly being put in right. its place. Right. No. I mean, I I totally am in, in, in awe and so of their strength. And that comes from studying and reading up about this. And I am deeply offended by people who say or insinuate that there is some sort of weakness or a reason to be embarrassed of their own family members. I had a woman call me, interview me from New York, and she said, I don't have, she said, first of all, I'll start this interview. I have no idea why you would even step foot on that plantation other than to burn it down to the ground. 
What wow. kind of black man would step on it? I don't, I'm not even curious of what it looked like. We got to talking and it just so happens, I know it's gonna sound hokey, but it, it really happened. We got to talking as I was trying to explain to her that I was in the genealogy and this led me here, that her mother died when she was a young girl and she has no idea what her mother looked like. <sighs> she doesn't remember her mother anymore and never had or doesn't have a picture. And I said to her, are you telling me that if you could go somewhere and find a picture of your mother from a relative and you could have that, you wouldn't go and do that? You would just say, well, I didn't know my mother. You know, I don't care what she looked like. I don't remember what she looked like. She's like, oh, no, I would. I said, that's what motivated me to go there. I wanted <laughs> to see what my relatives saw. Honestly, I have never been to another plantation. I don't know if I'd even go to another plantation if my relatives weren't there. Maybe I'm selfish mm -hmm. that way. But this was very important to specifically to my family. Right. And she went, oh, okay. I, okay. I, I, I get it. I swear. She was like, okay, I get it. I when believe she, it. When she came at me, mm -hmm. it was you know, what kind of step and fetch and stuff you got going on that you went to this thing. And I'm wow. like, serious? Because I, you know, oh, but, you know, I, I, that part was an ugly part of that whole thing. And I, and I, you know, like I said, I never intended it to ever become some, you know, viral thing, but having people sending me emails to my wife, to me, um, I had a pastor, copy his entire congregation and write me and basically cuss me out for going. Wow. Um, <laughs> my wife got messages on Facebook from people writing her, telling her she was a terrible mother and, and I was a terrible dad for doing this. And just, it was, and nobody cared to know why. Nobody cared to ask me why. And then you had conservative news outlets writing not things I said, but their take on what happened, saying black man says slavery's bygones be bygones. I, I never said that, right. you know, and, and so I kind of understood if black people were coming at me like that. And trust me, it was a minority. It was not the, by no means the majority. It was just the loud minority. But I kind of gave them, I said, well, damn, if you read that news article that said black man says bygones be bygones and see pictures of me eating chicken or whatever at the plantation, I understand why you came at me like right, that. Right. From the source of the news that you know where you got it from. But yeah, it was um <laughs> yeah, it was I, I agree with you. They are both sides. You have white people who don't want to know about it, and you got black people who don't want to know about it. And I just think that. There is no way you can understand anything that's happening today, whether it be police brutality, whether it be generational poverty, whether it be the education gap between whites and blacks, you name it, all of it points back to the relationship, the historical relationship between African-Americans and white Americans in this country that was fortified for hundreds of years with no desire to change it at right. all. Never have we put as much energy into repairing it as we did fortifying it and codifying it and saying, if you this dark, you can't work here and you can't. How you want to know why black people die and don't transfer any wealth, virtually any wealth today? Every generation of black people in this country practically starts off at ground zero. Yet you talk to some of my white friends and 
when their parents die, they leave them a house. Sometimes there's a house and a cottage up north. And then there's stocks and then there's money that they save. My dad paid to bury his mom. She didn't leave him a red cent. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just mm-hmm. that we are constantly starting at zero. Why is that? We were, we've been here for centuries because we didn't get paid for anything we did for the first two and a half, 250 years. Right. And then after we were freed from slavery, like you said, some of your relatives stayed on on the same plantation as sharecroppers. OK, because the threat of taking your children taking their children if they didn't get a job as a sharecropper. They passed laws that said if he was unemployed, we get to take the children. And no one is hiring you but him, the person you just came from. Come on, man. Mm -hmm. Man, the fact that they kept their sanity, the fact that they, you know, held it together, the fact that you went to college, graduated from college, and you have beautiful children that came from that. All Mm -hmm. of that is miraculous. It is. It's miraculous. That's the perfect word. It is miraculous. Right. And I think we take that for granted. Yeah. Uh, one last question, I promise. Um, I have to ask you this. If you could meet one of your ancestors, who would it be and why? Honestly, um, I wouldn't want to meet um, any of my ancestors from back in this in especially like and on the plantation mm-hmm. it'd be too painful i can't even imagine mm-hmm. looking at let's say meeting my grandmother or meeting an uncle and knowing that this is the situation that you were going to be that you are in and you will be in for the rest of your life now i would like to meet go back and talk to my great grandfather because although he lived to be a hundred I didn't always ask him the question. I got a whole, shoot, I got a whole book of questions I would ask him today. If he was here, I'd say, okay, you going, you, we about to go to work. But, you know, when you're seven, eight, 10 years old and, you know, he's, you know, just walking in the fields with you or you're going to church with him or whatever, and he just seemed as old as dirt. You're not even thinking about a lot of questions that I would ask him. But if you go, if you want to go back and I don't want to meet any of the Adams. Um, I told Robert, we were on TV and I told Robert, I told it was a show called The Preachers. I don't know whatever happened to it, but I said, Robert and I had a great conversation. We laughed, we had dinner and I consider him a friend. I said, but if I was talking to his grand great grandfather or his grand uncle, the one who enslaved my family, believe me, it'd be an entirely different conversation. Right. I don't want to meet any of them for what they did to my family. I don't, I mean, there's nothing I could say. You did it, you continue to do it. I, I had conservative news outlets tell me, well, how do you know your great, great grandmother was, they didn't have a love affair. They wanted to make it a, a love affair as to, mm-hmm. and I said, happens, yeah. he, never, he never freed her. And I go, but, 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 and I go, he never freed her. He loved her. That's what you're trying to insinuate. But they go, but how do you know? Because they want so they this romanticized southern right. thing is so strong in them. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, bruh, if you loved her, you would have gave her the same freedom that you have. Now, maybe I'm being judgmental. Maybe that's my only, but no, yeah. you yeah. died and just sold her to somebody else. Right. Come right. on, man. Come on. So I don't want to meet any of them. And I think it would just be so painful to meet the my ancestors that actually were enslaved 
And then be honest with you, the passing for white slave ancestors that relatives that I have, I think they had real racial color issues. Okay. Mm, I think that they only hung out with ones. So I don't even know how accepting they would be of me because I sure can't pass. And Mm -hmm. I don't really want to deal with that stuff either. That's mess to me. So (laughs) I would go back to my great grandfather, James Henry, and I would want to sit down with him when he was maybe 75, you know, when I, when I was a little boy and he, and I would love to just talk his ear off and find out what it was like with him growing up and who did he know, but to actually go back further than that, I don't, I don't think I would, that would be too painful for me. All right. Well, I will say this in conclusion that I am sure that if um, those great grandmothers um, that were emancipated, if they are indeed in heaven and they have an opportunity to know that who you are and to see your family and your children, I can't even imagine that their hearts must be skipping a beat. And so from that perspective, um, oh yeah, I'm, I'm getting a little bit emotional because I know that Ooh, they want the best for their children and you have um, a beautiful family and the fact that you care about them and that you're interested in them, I think would have been important to them because uh, they would have, yeah, yeah, they would have wanted to What you and I are doing right now, the lives we are living right now mm-hmm. was their dream. It was their dream. Seriously, that is their dream. And we live it every day. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's not bringing it down. I can't even imagine somebody like, like you and I said, you know, how are you going to leave your child? You know, run away. How selfish would that be? Because you know you're leaving them in that situation, the same right. one you're running from, you mm-hmm. know? So- for that gentleman, that uncle, that unknown uncle that I have to look down at me and see me today, he's like, man, you made it. Yeah. You yeah. Made it. You're educated. You, you, you have money. Now, I'm not rich, nothing like that. But you know what I mean? You don't struggle right. to pay your bills. You have a loving family. You're talking to a beautiful sister right now with a podcast and you're discussing what happened with <laughs> us. Oh, man, they right. That they are beside themselves because this is what they wanted for their children. And they, we realize it. Yes, absolutely. Well, Nkrumah, it has been amazing to speak with you. And again, I, um, I'm i interested to see, you know, if you ever decide that you're going to sort of kind of pick up uh, where you left off and figure out more of this history or to write about this history. I do know that you're a writer. I uh, would love to know more, but I want to thank you so much for making space um, in your day, taking the time to talk with me. And I really think that it's going to inform a lot of people about this experience and how we should be proud of who we are and who they were. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. It's been fun. (laughs) Thank you for coming. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.